and also just keep being cognizant of the fact that Dartmouth weren't meant for people who look like myself, who look like Ariana when they were first made. And because of that, it is so important that people take the initiative to keep taking steps in making these spaces more inclusive and equitable. And I think that for me, I look back at that C I got and I know my grades at Dartmouth haven't necessarily been perfect. But if I leave and I feel like I somehow have made this space better for those who come after me, I feel like I did something good and I did something valuable in my time here. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Hello, everyone. It's Sid, Sid Finkelstein, and this is episode number 143 of the SIDcast. And it's also my second episode in as many weeks where I talk to college students today, actually, or in this episode, two college students, both at Dartmouth, Sam Carranza and Ariana Ramsey. Let me tell you a little bit about them. So Sam is a first generation low-income Latina woman. Actually, she's at Dartmouth College getting a bioengineering and biomedical engineering degree. She is also a QuestBridge scholar. She's worked in two pretty prestigious internships already, both Seattle Children's Hospital and Quantrix Biotech. Her interests are in developmental biology, human genetics. But in addition to this part of her life, she is really passionate where she wants to make her mark is about making research more inclusive and accessible to underrepresented minorities. She's a member of one of Dartmouth's sororities, Alpha Phi, which has been historically white institution. Of course, Dartmouth College, historically white college, where Sam Carranza has worked as vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusivity to make the sorority a place where all are celebrated, all are welcome. It's a significant role, and Sam has played a big part in that. It's really great to talk to her in this episode because you hear her passion and really what she wants to accomplish, especially around involving and opening up research at the highest level to underrepresented communities. I think she wants to even get a PhD, and I wouldn't hold it. I wouldn't put that past her. You talk to Sam and you say, there's nothing this young woman can't do. She also talks and is proud about being a daughter of a single mom and the first member of her family to apply to college. You know, when we think about what these great schools can do for students, for young people, when we bring in more people that have not had all kinds of advantages, the first kids in their families to go to university, the impact, the delta of that impact is really gigantic. And it's something that I know Dartmouth and many other universities have been focusing on more and more over the last few years. My second guest today is Ariana Ramsey. She is actually a member of the U.S. Olympic women's rugby sevens team. She was at Tokyo in the Olympics, but unfortunately tore her ACL. Needless to say, tragic for her, given how much time and energy she has put into it. But she's bouncing back. You know, in high school, she was even a wrestler and competed against boys, some of whom would actually forfeit their matches because they, quote, didn't want to fight a girl, end quote. Ariana is really interested in business. She already has her own fashion company, which is kind of amazing, right? Eva Lux Fashion. And she's interested in going into business, both whether it's in wealth management or marketing after college. And so here we have two young women from underrepresented communities at Ivy League institution 
And both of them are so interesting, so impressive. Both are planning to, they will, they feel like they will change the world. And I love that again, because like my guest in the last episode, Kevin Boyce from Brown, these are people, these are Gen Zers, people you want to bet on. In the world we're in today and all the problems, both in the US and everywhere else, and the struggles and the trauma, it's really good to know that somehow this society of ours keeps on producing raw material talent that then just grab opportunities and blast through barriers to try to accomplish great things. It does give us more confidence and hope in what is possible. So with all that, let me invite into the SIDCAST studio, Sam Carranza and Ariana Ramsey. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein, your host here in season four and actually for all the other seasons as well. And today we're doing something a little bit different. I have two guests with me, two Dartmouth students, Sam Carranza and Ariana Ramsey. Welcome, Sam. Welcome, Ariana. Thank you. Thank you. Good to have you on the podcast. I know it's a little bit different. Have either of you done a podcast already as a guest or a host or done anything like this before? Ariana, you must have been interviewed a lot, though, because of the Olympics. I had one podcast and like one interview for some other company. Okay. Let's start with Sam. So, Sam, where did you grow up? I'm from White Plains, New York, which is part of Westchester, New York, which might be more better known to people. <laughs> yep. One thing that is interesting about your background that you're proud of, actually dedicated to doing a lot about, is that you're the first in your family to go to college. Actually, is it true to even apply to college? Yes. I am the first in my family to apply and go to school. I'm also an only child, so it's kind of a big deal in my family. Yeah, it's a big deal. It can also be a little nerve wracking at times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I have also one child, a uh, daughter, touch older than you guys. And she does tell me being the center of everything can be a little challenging at times. But what did your parents do? I really only grew up with my mom and my mom is a housekeeper slash nanny, more so of a housekeeper. And my dad did a lot of carpentry and landscaping. Mm -hmm. What made you want to be that first person apply to college? It was funny because I think the area that I grew up in and the school district that I went to, it offered a lot of opportunity in that sense. I think part of it goes back to that aspect of the American dream of like both of my parents came to the U.S. when they were in their very early 20s. And my mom in particular, like when it was just me and her, I think very much made it a point of ingraining it into me that through education, it was that we can move up in the world and that make something of ourselves. So growing up, there was always this kind of idea that I was going to go to college. I don't think I even necessarily understood what my financial situation and what my like background necessarily looked like at that point in time. I think I was too naive to understand that. But I always had this idea that I was going to go to college. And as I grew older, I think getting to that point of actually getting into college seemed a little more intimidating once I became more aware of where I was coming from. But that didn't necessarily deter me from doing everything I could to try to get to where I am now. You moved from White Plains to Little Hanover, New Hampshire. What was the biggest difference that you saw right off the bat? It's kind of interesting because for people who do know anything about Westchester County, there's this always this notion of affluence surrounded by it. And I think through that association comes the idea that there's a lot of white people where I grew up. But I'm from White Plains, which is actually a very Latino little city. And my high school alone at the time that I went to, it was 52% Latino. So when I got to Dartmouth, I think it was for a lot of people, they said that Dartmouth was very diverse. And for me, it was quite the opposite and kind of reverse culture shock because I grew up in such a diverse place with so many different backgrounds. And I feel like 
like, while at Dartmouth, I do get a lot of corners of the world. It's just not quite the same as growing up in my little city. Right, right. And so people would say to you, or maybe Dartmouth is represented as very diverse, but based Mm -hmm. on your life experience at this point, maybe not so much. You know, one thing I'm interested in is more and more universities, especially top universities, are making a better effort, a bigger effort to try to find smart, talented kids that would be the first in their families to go to university or may not have even thought about it in the same way that the prep school kid is kind of groomed to do that. But what happens is once you hit campus, all of a sudden you're thrown in with all these other kids that have had all kinds of advantages and know the ropes, how to maneuver and all kinds of other things. Did you find that to be an issue? What was the support system like here? Not just at home, which I'm sure was substantial, but here in campus. I think that was something that I actually found myself reflecting on not too long ago, because I feel like when I was in high school, I was always told that I was being prepped for college and all these things. And I went to a public school and honestly, I would say a pretty great one. And I'm very grateful for all of the programs that I had access to and resources I had access to. But I remember my first two weeks here, excluding pre-orientation and orientation and just like that, getting settled in the actual first two weeks of classes. It was quite literally that scenario of I had my first assignment and I got it back and I got a fat C on the assignment. And I remember thinking I tried my hardest and just being a little nervous because it Mm -hmm. seemed that people around me who had come from prep schools and private schools and just schools that were ranked, definitely ranked higher than my high school, just seemed so much better equipped for Dartmouth. At first, felt like I was struggling to keep up. And that was definitely very intimidating, especially just coming with that pressure of being the first in my family and what the Dartmouth name, like the weight it holds. I'll tell you a quick anecdote about myself in a moment that you're triggering. But what was your reaction once you got over the shock? Because you probably didn't see too many C's in high school and a big fat one at that. What was going through your head? I was at first really terrified, I think, because my first thought was panic, was I don't fit in here. I don't belong here in kind of your classic case of imposter syndrome. And I think what I realized, in a sense, comforting was that a lot of people from backgrounds like mine found themselves in a very similar situation. And I think, in a sense, I found community through people who felt the same way. And through that, just finding people were experiencing the same things I was. We all found each other and through that we were able to connect each other to resources that other people didn't know that like one of us had that the other person didn't know they had within that formed our own little network. And I think if it hadn't been for that community, I don't think I would have made it through my first year here. A lot of people don't, and this includes universities, don't understand because I say we pat ourselves in the back. Wow, we admitted all these first generation kids. We're great. We've done what we're supposed to do. And then we leave them alone. And, you know, the old expression of it really takes a village, it turns out to be true. The quick anecdote about me was when I was in my, and this is maybe interesting for you because you have aspirations maybe to get a PhD, but when I was in the PhD program, my first week or two, you do a lot of math in PhD programs, even if it's social sciences. That was a kind of a heavy duty math class. And I had worked like crazy. And we were in the cafeteria just hanging out, me and some of my classmates, and it just came up about how we handle a couple of the problems. There was a woman that had a different approach to mine, and I felt a little bit bad for her. She's like, wow, she's going to struggle a little bit. And you know what I'm about to say, right? She was right and I was wrong. And man, did that slap me in the face because I was used to getting perfect grades on every math exam. And all of a sudden the game had gone up and that was fine. You know, it's good to have a little humility, get slapped down and get back up and get ready to deal with it. And this is maybe a side note too. Everyone needs to find a thing that they can excel at where they have their secret power, which is maybe your generation term (laughs) more than mine. In my case was creativity. 
and coming up with the right questions or interesting questions to ask. Sam, I'm going to keep chatting with you because we have lost Ariana temporarily. Hopefully she shall return. And these people that you were with that formed your support group at the beginning, are they people you continue to be close to through your time at Dharma? Yeah, many of them, yes. And I think that there have been instances in which we were maybe close at the beginning of our Dartmouth experiences and then maybe sort of drifted apart and went our own ways for a little bit. And then I find that now that we're seniors, I find myself going back to a lot of these people. And I think it's really nice to see how, in a sense, it's not necessarily that we weren't compatible people in the beginning. We were definitely there for each other and cared very much about each other at the start. But I think we all needed to go our separate ways, in a sense, and kind of explore the different circles and communities within Dartmouth. Because the one thing that we did all have in common was that we were first gen and low income. That didn't necessarily mean that's all we had in common. We're all very different people, various different identities. So I think it was cool that we got to go explore all of those identities or many of them and then coming back and realizing that as we've grown into ourselves, we're still compatible as friends. And I think that's been like a really special thing to see now as we get towards the end of our undergraduate experience. Okay, Ariana, where did you grow up? I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, and what was that like? I mean, in the city or one of the beautiful suburbs there or what? I was born in Philadelphia and I grew up there up until about middle school. And then that's when I moved to King of Prussia, which is the suburb of Philadelphia. It's like 30 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Most people know King of Prussia Mall, but I say Philly because some people don't know King of Prussia. Right. I never liked the idea of knowing a place because there's a shopping mall there. It's got to be some other more important landmark than that. But okay, what did your parents do? So my mother, she's a nurse, and my father, he worked for the city of Philadelphia. Or for the city. When you were growing up, was there ever any doubt about you going to university? I've always known that I wanted to go to the university. My parents never been. They didn't go. My father, he went to community college for two years. But I've always known that I wanted to go to college. Like my mom, she's always encouraged me to want to go. And my father always encouraged me to go, as well as my grandparents. Are you actually first generation as well, then? I am. Okay. Interesting. So you guys can compare notes. So Ariana, as an athlete, did you come to Dharma as a recruited athlete as well, or is something that happened afterwards? Yes, I came here as a recruited athlete. So you must have played rugby in high school. Yeah, I started in 10th grade of high school. And before that, I was doing competitive cheerleading for six years and running track in high school as well. Why did you pick rugby? I like to say rugby picked me. They had different stands set up and Like at high school, you know how they want you to sign up for different clubs. So my best friend and I, she was like, we went to go check out the stand and we were like, we didn't know what rugby was at all. But this girl was there and she kept trying to encourage us to come like every single day. She was so consistent. So then we were just like, okay, we're going to go. So then we went and we played and we had so much fun. And then my coach like saw potential in me. He invited me to go to camp that played around the U.S. And then that's when I got scouted for USA And I got scouted by the Dartmouth coach here. Wow. So when did you start being part of the Olympic team? Like, how does that work anyways? How do you get onto the Olympic team? We all want to do that. Yeah. So it's not like one day. Like I said, I got recruited. So as I was playing around America, USA kind of scouts people, obviously. So they were scouting me and then they would invite me to their camps at their Olympic training facility. So I would go there and basically that kind of put me in a pool at a young age I was about 16 or 17 that put me in like this pool for the future Olympics in general. So as time goes on, they kind of just make sure you're still training. They give you programming and yeah, it prepares you for when your time is. So because of COVID, I wasn't originally going to go to the Olympics. COVID happened and we were taking classes from online. So they were like, since you're already home, do you want to come train and do school at the same time? 
bad idea, horrible idea. Can't do Ivy League school, Olympic training at the same time. So while I was trying to do both, I just decided to take the year off after my sophomore summer. I was like, this is too much. I'm going to lose my mind. So I just took the year off, the COVID year off. And I had no idea if I was going to make it. So basically tryouts were an entire year. So the whole year that we're training, I had no idea if I'm going to make the team or not. So obviously throughout the year, I'm just thinking like, should I go back to school? Like I still have time to do this winter and graduate on time. Like I'm thinking about that as each training after each training every day, because I don't do well every day. And sometimes I do better than other days. So I just start to contemplate and it was just getting really frustrating. By like the summertime in July, they decide who they were going to pick. So that's when they chose the actual team. And this is July of 20 or 21? Because the Olympics were delayed. It was more like the end of June. It's 2021. If it wasn't for COVID, would you have been ready to be on the team in 20, you think? Yes. If I had that year of training, yes. As long as I got that year of training, I think I would have been ready. But if they were to call me like right off of uh, college rugby, no, I don't think I would have been like that year of training five hours a day is crucial for improvement and development. And I think that applies to like anything that people are trying to accomplish. If you put those hours in every day, daily for every week, I think you can really accomplish a lot by. You've heard about the 10,000 hour theory. Yes. Yes. I believe it. I've always thought it's a cool thing. Malcolm Gladwell made it famous. There were some psychologists that developed that theory, and he wrote about it in one of his books. I always thought it's not just the number of hours, it's the quality of those hours. And I think that is actually a very generalizable point for almost anything that you're doing. It could be studying, for example, take something simple in a way. We all know sometimes you're 100% focused and it's great. You get a lot done. Other times they're a longer time and it's slower. I think it's true for work. In your case, it's athletics. I think it's very true. Do you remember what was the process that the coaches went through to tell you that you were on the team or tell some other people who were training that they were not on the team? Did you sit down? Were you called into the room? What was that like? Yeah, I actually put this on YouTube. I thought it would be a very important and interesting moment. I vlogged the moment. I was sitting in my room. They were going to release the roster at 12 o'clock. They were sending it in an email and a PDF. They were released the roster with everyone's names on it at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. So I'm sitting there at 1130, sat there for 30 minutes straight with anxiety, freaking out, having no idea if I was going to make it. So that's what it was like. You know, one of the first episodes I did of the SIDCast was actually with the Dartmouth alum, Dartmouth and Tuck alum, Jillian Apps. It was Canadian and is a, I believe, four-time gold medalist in hockey. And she didn't make the team the first time, which is maybe not surprising when you're very young. But she described the whole process about how everyone would be called into this room and the coaches would be around. There'd be one chair just sitting there by itself. And you sat down and then they would tell you. She said it was the scariest thing I ever did. And when you don't get it, you have to deal with it. Have you had that type of thing happen to you where you really wanted something and it didn't happen? Because that's how you build resilience muscle that's so important. I think that happens to me when I get injured. I've had three surgeries two shoulders, one knee. So that's where my resilience comes in. I injured my shoulder like the first year playing rugby. And then the second year, my other shoulder, to me, that's resilience because I came back after two injuries, again, playing this very dangerous sport, knowing that I could get injured again, which I did at the Olympics. So I think the fact that I continue to play rugby after my injuries shows that I am, for one, crazy, and for two, resilient. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you about the crazy part. Why did you keep coming? These are big injuries. And when you said knee injury, that was ACL. That's a big recovery time. Yeah. Why do I keep coming back? 
because I'm good at it and I have never done anything that has made me feel this happy ever in my life. So I think it's super important because a lot of people are really not going to find what they really love to do. I hope everyone does, but it's hard to really find what you're good at and what you love to do at the same time. So the fact that I have found that, it's a feeling that I can't give up until it's really, really time. And it's hard to give up, but I will have to eventually. That's great. Let me switch back to Sam. And you've been listening to Ariana and curious about if you have any reactions because some of the things she was talking about around resilience about finding the thing you really love to do. We all want that. I mean, I wish that on all of my students. When we talk about career advice and other things like that, I tell them this very simple metric, which is when Sunday night feels as good as Friday night, you know you've got the right thing you're doing because it doesn't feel like work. It's just what you want to do, what you're made to do. Sam, how does that connect to your world, how you think about it? First, I just want to say I'm impressed by Ariana. I'm very inspired sitting here talking to you and getting to hear this from you. Like, it is so awesome. As a first-generation woman of color, you are going to be a role model to so many people. That is so phenomenal because, I guess, connecting to myself, one thing that has always been really important to me is just I recognize that I've had a lot of opportunity and a lot of privilege, even if some people would say that I don't necessarily come from a lot of privilege. And I realize that there are people who came before me who definitely put, like Ariana was saying, had to be resilient and had to, in times of hardship, keep going and pushing. It's because of those people who came from backgrounds similar to mine, who came before me, that I have the opportunity to be at a school like this, that I have the opportunity to do the things I do and to engage all these activities on campus and outside of campus. And just what I think I'm passionate about in that sense is continuing that idea and that notion of paying it forward and realizing that everything that we've gotten to do is because someone else did it first and also just keep being cognizant of the fact that spaces like Dartmouth weren't meant for people who look like myself, who look like Ariana when they were first made. And because of that, it is so important that people take the initiative to keep taking steps in making these spaces more inclusive and equitable. And I think that for me, I look back at that C I got and I know my grades at Dartmouth haven't necessarily been perfect, but if I leave and I feel like I somehow have made this space better for those who come after me, I feel like I did something good and I did something valuable in my time here. This is just audio and not video, but I'm looking at Sam and Ariana and they're smiling and nodding their heads. So they're copacetic <laughs> on this. That's for sure. That's great. When you talk about equity and inclusion, that is your passion. That is something you spend a lot of time and a lot of energy. Could you share a little bit, first of all, what it is you're doing? And I think as part of a sorority, no less, which is not exactly a class of group that is known historically. I don't want to say anything about more modern times, but historically focused on diversity, equity, inclusion. Going back to what I was saying, a lot of the spaces that I take part in now were not spaces that were originally intended to be for women of color, people of color, especially like a sorority, which really was not made for anyone who basically wasn't Protestant and white. Realistically, at a space like Dartmouth, where Greek is so prevalent, it's unreasonable to assume that just because these spaces weren't originally made for people of color, people of marginalized and underrepresented communities, that as the school does become more diverse, that people won't want to take part in these. I mean, if we look around, we definitely see that there are more and more people of these underrepresented backgrounds taking part in Greek life. So it's unreasonable to keep things the same in this sense. So I was very hesitant about rushing when I first came to Dartmouth and even my sophomore year, which is why people do usually rush. So my sophomore fall, I chose not to because I had a lot of preconceived notions about Greek life, mostly about where they came from and the premises that they were founded on. And then in the winter, after seeing so many people go through the process and seeing that people were okay, I 
decided to go through it myself. And one of the things that I asked was, how am I going to be kept safe here? How is this space going to give me a platform in which I can express and share all of my identities and feel comfortable and feel loved? And I'm in the Alpha Phi sorority, and I was particularly very drawn to the fact that they were the first sorority on campus that had a position dedicated to diversity and inclusivity. And there was this wonderful senior at the time who graduated in the class of 2020 named Selena. And she was the person who basically put all this work into it because of the work of her and other really fantastic, powerful women. They actually later on inspired Alpha Phi National, because we are a national sorority, to bring together this committee of collegiate girls to make a position that would become part of the national executive structure. And I actually got to sit on that committee and work on the manual and put together this position and revise national bylaws and put together modules about how to have more conversations surrounding difficult topics and uncomfortable topics about how to make space more equitable. And in October of 2020, we actually got to launch this brand new position on a nationwide scale. And that was really, really cool because I felt like I actually got to see the results of my efforts in real time. And usually those types of things, I feel like, take a lot of time. But getting that direct result at that point in time was really, really awesome. Completely true. When you work that hard to make it actually happen and see it, it doesn't always work out that way. But let me ask both of you the same question, which is at your time in college, have you felt discriminated in some way, discriminated against in some way? Because that's what people want to try to understand and what could be done about that. I'm generalizing, but often I think it's people don't even know they're doing what they're doing and we could educate people so they're more self-aware. So let me ask the two of you if that's ever been an issue for you in your four years here. When people ask me that, which I have been asked by my family members at home and professors here at school, they're always like, what can we do to make things better? If I'm being honest, I don't have an answer to that. But as far as my experience of being discriminated against, I feel like it's so hard for me to address what the actual discrimination is because it's so deeply ingrained that you can't really put it into words. And that's just the hardest thing that I've been trying to understand. I wish I could explain it more deeply, but I feel like it's already ingrained in people. They don't notice that they're doing it. Even when we're in spaces like sororities, for example, people naturally diverge off into people that are similar to them. That's just how the world works. You can tell that people are treating you differently for some reason, like it may or may not be based on color. So that's just something that I've been thinking about. Sorry, that was not like a clear answer, but. Well, thanks for sharing that. Sam, what do you think? I agree. I feel like it's also hard to put into specific words what it specifically looks like. For me, like some examples are being a woman or being specifically a woman of color in the field of engineering. I've been in group projects where it's me and the rest of my group is white men and just feeling very spoken over, feeling like I suggest an idea and it's not listened to. And then maybe later on, the same idea has been suggested and it's praised and listened to. And that's just one example. I mean, I feel like that just overall women in the STEM fields that were, I mean, engineering, but yes, STEM overall definitely feel that way. But I think the best way to explain it is microaggressions. I don't think I can think of specific examples because in a sense, I feel like the discrimination here is never blatant and forward. I feel like people here are much more intelligent than that. And it's the type of thing where it's probably not even 
intentional. It's very subconscious and things that are these biases that are just ingrained in us just from the culture and the society we live in and things that are perpetuated by media. One thing I think that is very prominent here that people don't talk about is the implication behind the beauty standards of being a woman of color on this campus. I feel like being a woman of color on this camp means that we are held to much different, almost more intense beauty standards than white women or white passing women. And it's really unfortunate, but it's true. And I think I've been trying to unpack this a lot. And it's not necessarily that people are racist. I don't know if it's as far as to go and say that, but more so that because of the racial history of this country and the past that we have and this glorification of Eurocentric beauty standards, we all have this colonized perception of beauty. And I feel like, especially at a place like Dartmouth, where it is a predominantly white institution, those standards are only amplified and it very negatively impacts women of color. And I think it can definitely impact people's self-esteem and just distort perceptions of oneself. I had a podcast guest towards the end of season three, Valeria Allo, and she's a Latina. She's had a pretty high-powered career in banking and marketing and other years, but she dedicated herself to developing activities, programs, mindsets, teaching to help Latina women in particular fulfill their potential and not feel that they don't deserve their spot, which is a bit of an imposter syndrome, but it goes a little bit beyond that. And she talks about her own life. She has a new book, actually, just came out a few months ago, and she talks about what it was like and the challenge that she's had to overcome, and she's dedicating her life to doing that. That's something I'll share with you later, both of you, later, because it's quite a resource and pretty talented person who's putting her mind and her time to this. So switching gears a little bit, one thing that I saw in your bio, Ariana, is that you have, is it a fashion brand or what's this side gig you got going on? So I'm an entrepreneur. I want to be an entrepreneur, which is part of the reason why school is just an interesting topic for me. But my favorite thing here is the Magnuson Center Entrepreneurship Program. I'm in that club and they do a lot of events. In 2018, when I graduated from high school in the summertime, I started this company called Avalux Fashion. I basically saw a product that people love and I found it wholesale and I resold it to a lot of people in my city and I made a return on it. So that was very inspiring for me to just make the whole thing a brand. That's what I did. So I started the company, Avalux Fashion, and I started selling more products. Once I got to college, that's why I decided to learn economics and Chinese because I was doing business with Chinese manufacturers. So I thought if I learned the language, I can build better relationships with these people. So that's kind of where I'm at right now in the process. Trying to do the business and school at the same time is nearly not very good at juggling two giant things at one time. So I noticed that about myself. So I kind of put it on hold while I'm in school and just using the resources that I have here to figure out as much as I can and try to be able to make my business go where I want it to go. And then probably branch out from outside of fashion as well, just different businesses in general. So what is the actual product or products that are part of Avalux? I have different products, but the main concept is this style. <laughs> it stands <laughs> out. It's very different. But a lot of my products are just based on this like bling style of clothing. Obviously, the quality, I want to move into higher quality stuff. I found this company in Russia. They use this design for like dresses for Russian dancers. So I've been branching out and looking at different things that I can do to increase the quality and try to make it this standout brand with this standout style of rhinestones and crystals. So that is very interesting. 
Where did this kind of entrepreneurial bug, it's more than that. I mean, you're doing it. So where did it come from? Did you have things like that you were doing when you were a kid or your parents or was it just something you developed? Yes, definitely. When I was younger, for Christmas, I would ask for machines. I remember I was selling balls. I would make these little bouncy balls and then sell them at school. And then I would make like rings and sell them at school. I just remember, and I, my dad, he like had all these oils, like uh, smell oils, and I would sell them to my family members. So I just remember always just selling things to people when I was younger. So that's where it came from. I can't let it go without comment. And so you're just learning Chinese on the side is just another thing you're doing. It's my minor. Yeah, it's my minor. And how's your Chinese so far? (laughs) It's okay. I feel like if I go on the study abroad, I would enhance my learning much quicker, but I'm like pretty basic. Can you say, because there are people in China that listen. Oh, gosh. Could you say (laughs) thanks for listening to us on the SIDCast or anything close to that? Okay. That was horrible. I'm not good at Chinese. (laughs) It sounded pretty good to me and Sam, I'll tell you that much. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. So it's not just two things. It's actually three things because you're not forgetting about the rugby part. School, there's rugby, there's your business. Whether you think you're doing it or not, you're juggling a lot of big stuff, right? It's hard when you're at Dartmouth and entrepreneurship is not helping my GPA. Rugby is not helping my GPA. When I'm getting my grades back and taking tests and quizzes, it all feels so just out of the realm of what I'm trying to achieve. So it's just got to keep going through, get my degree and... I appreciate Dartmouth for everything that it brings. I do. And it's teaching me a lot. So I guess courses are just what comes with the whole experience. (laughs) So you brought up being entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurialism, creating businesses is one of the ways in which different communities push themselves up to a different level of wealth, if you will. I don't mean wealth as in Silicon Valley wealth, but much more comfortable and being able to accomplish something. And again, I keep thinking about different episodes. I guess I've had on the SIDCast. One of my former students, his name is Jacques-Philippe Piverger. Well, his family's from Haiti. He got his MBA at Tuck. He has a venture capital firm called Ozone that specializes in funding people of color and women. This is very interesting. He says, and he has some data to back this up, and there actually have been studies beyond what he's done, that the returns on those types of investments are often higher than returns from, quote, let's just say standard investments. And why is that? Because there's less competition, for maybe obvious reasons, less competition to fund people of color and women. And therefore, they don't have as many choices. So here you come as a venture capitalist, but you have a tremendous talent pool to pick from, that have not been given the same opportunities. And actually, when it comes to venture capital, it's pretty well known when you look at the data, how many female founders get venture capital money. I think it's one or 2%. It's completely mind boggling. And so here's a market breakdown that some people could say, this is terrible, this is wrong. And here comes Jacques-Philippe Perverger, who's figuring out a way to make money out of it and supporting people at the same time. To me, that's like the home run for you. And along the way, you end up helping a lot of people. That's another contact for you, Ariane, if you stick with the fashion business. So Sam, you are an engineer. Is it bioengineering? What is your specialty? Yeah, bioengineering. I'm particularly interested in genetic engineering and protein engineering at the developmental stage of human genetics, mostly. Is that related to CRISPR and work that Jennifer Doudna has done? And there are a bunch of several companies, billion dollar valuations that are experimenting in that area. Yeah, things along that realm. Could you tell us what's the latest thing going on in that? Walter Isaacson wrote a fantastic book about Jennifer Doudna. If you haven't read it, it's talk about inspirational. And she won a Nobel Prize for her uh, work. 
And it's basically gene editing with the potential to help society and people more so than almost anything I've ever heard of. I'm curious what you're learning and what you're seeing in that area, Sam. It's kind of interesting because I think with the rise of COVID-19, it seems like everything we're learning is kind of tying back to COVID-19, which is really interesting. So I think like learning a lot about vaccines and kind of what they're made of. So it's very funny because when I have a family member who is hesitant to get the vaccine, immediately my mom or my uncle or someone will be like, oh, talk to Sam, she'll tell you exactly what's in there. <laughs> Even though I'm not really pre-med or anything like the medical expert in my family, just because I feel like the way that the pandemic has progressed. And I think now it's considered an endemic with all the mutations and things as the virus keeps shifting and changing. It kind of just gives more and more material for classes to teach about. So I feel like being a bioengineering student or really just anyone in the pre-med or just within that biomedical realm, any basically right now, everything we're learning has just been taken up by COVID and relating back to COVID. It's not hard to demonstrate how relevant all of this is when we're all living, still living globally with this. So kind of connecting the dots a little bit for some of your interests in equity inclusion and then bioengineering. Have you looked at, have you studied the differences in different communities? This could be a global question, but it could be a U.S. question too. Not just the availability of care, but the mindset of people and how to deal with that. Yeah, actually, I feel like I got really good firsthand experience of this because I actually was stranded outside of the country for four months in Costa Rica. My dad is Costa Rican, so I'm half Costa Rican. And I went down there to get my wisdom teeth removed because it was much cheaper down there than it is here. Um, and I had to get this whole procedure done because my teeth were all sorts of wonky, but I ended up getting stranded there for four months. And I remember when that first happened, Costa Rica is considered a third world country. So there were only 60 respirators in the country at the time. And the country would immediately close borders because they knew that the minute that COVID took over the country, they wouldn't have the means with which to support people, especially for a respiratory virus. They just did not have the resources. And I got to be there for a lot of the initial developments and vaccines and everything and watching what the development looked like being from the U.S. But from an outside perspective was very interesting because just knowing that I mean, I was going to go home. I knew I was going to have firsthand access to all of these things and knowing that that was a privilege in itself. Whereas like my family and like the people I was living with, they were frontline workers. They were teachers and doctors and pharmacists. And they were out there every day fighting to keep people healthy and safe in the ways that they could. And I think for me, it definitely put things into perspective of just how lucky we are being here in the U.S. And it more so just furthered my desire to want to go into this field so that in some ways I in having a PhD or having a title of sorts, having that position in which I have power to actually make change that matters and that could actually help people. Is that a big motivation for aspiring to get a PhD? Yeah. Also, just the fact that I think it's something ridiculous. Maybe 3% of all engineering degrees held. It might be wrong there. Don't quote me on that. But it's something very low. That very small percentage of engineering degrees are held by specifically Latino women. And I look at engineering professors here at Dartmouth. And I think that while they have been great and all, having had a professor who maybe looked like me, who came from my background or just even understood where I'm coming from would have made a big difference in how I learned. And I think even my comfort towards the school. And I want to be that for someone else. I think that's really important because, again, it's going back to I'm seeing what I had and what I would have wanted and wanting to be that for someone else. 
that makes a lot of sense. It is really remarkable how just having someone that looks or acts or behaves or thinks the way you do makes such a difference. And I hear it time and time again. I could also tell you, talking to many, many senior executives, we are far beyond the war for talent. You know, that's a term, the war for talent, the McKinsey coined more than probably 15 years ago by now. We're far beyond that. In my view, it's never been a better time to be a person of talent, if you will, because the demand is just crazy. In particular, if you think about what you're just talking about, Sam, many of the companies that I work with or talk with, senior executives that I talk to, they are constantly saying how they are dedicated towards enhancing diversity, but their answer is they can't find. The talent pool is not there. I never like answers like that anyways. I mean, there's some truth to it, but I think it's too easy of a cop-out also. There's huge demand and interest. So good for you. So it's pretty interesting. The two of you have pretty big time aspirations and accomplishments already. Okay, so we have maybe five plus minutes left. Let me see whether either of you have a question for the other one. <laughs> if Sam has a question for Ariana or Ariana has a question for Sam, you don't have to. But if you do, this is a chance to do that. And then I have maybe one or two final things that I want to talk about. I'm just curious what made you choose Dartmouth. I came down to two schools and both of them, I remember I was the person who was like, I want a school in the city. And I ended up between two schools <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, both very small liberal arts schools. And it's funny because at first, I don't even think I was going to pick Dartmouth. And then I visited. And part of it was definitely seeing my mom, my mom's face and just the whole like, oh my gosh, I came here so young. And like this, everything I worked for, like my daughter got into an Ivy League. Like it was really, really hard to forget that look on her face. And I remember when I told her I got in, it was a whole big deal. When I saw the campus and this idea became a reality, it all fell into place. I was like, I'm going to be crazy for saying this, but I think I'm going to spend the next four years in New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> I've been living in Hanover, been Professor Dartmouth 28 years and more and more what you just described, Sam, I see just walking down the street, you see you know, a kid and their parents, or their mom or their dad or whatever. And their eyes are so big, they cannot believe that this has actually happened. As a parent, it's the greatest dream ever. It's very powerful. So for me, walking down the street even, when I see it, I say, wow, it's touching and it's great. It's great. So there are a lot of people who understand what you're talking about, Sam, and what your mom was feeling. I think I also have a question for Ariana. I feel like I've talked a lot about the legacy I want to leave at Dartmouth and the things that I want to leave behind for other people so I guess what I want to ask you is, what legacy do you want to leave behind at Dartmouth? At Dartmouth, I think it'll be more for the women's rugby team. I just feel like I'm influencing my teammates a lot by the person that I am on and off the field. So I think the biggest impact is going to be just being a role model for my teammates. That's a natural segue to a question I want to ask both of you as well, which is advice. Let's say high school senior has been accepted to Dartmouth and that person has a very similar background to each of you. And they come to you and they say, Sam or Ariana, I want one piece of advice. I probably wouldn't know or it wouldn't be obvious. That was really useful that I need to know about. What would be that bit of advice you'd give to the 18-year-old who is about to do what you're doing? I think one thing I would have told myself now as almost a 22-year-old speaking down to my 18-year-old self or back to my 18-year-old self, it's not get so hung up on the timeline of things and to not focus so much on how things are supposed to happen and the order in which they have to happen, but more so just let things flow and go as they have to be and let life play out the way it needs to. Your time here and your college career won't be as linear and as perfect as you imagined when you first got that acceptance letter. But it's almost better that way because 
while I do feel as I have grown as an academic and I'm definitely much smarter than I was when I got in here, I think because I've had all these little bumps in the road and all these things I've had to overcome, I've become a much better person. And I think I've started to grow into a version of myself that I'm becoming really proud of, which sounds really cheesy. But I think it's important to remember that even when things don't seem great and you're wondering, what am I still doing here? Just remembering that there is something good that's going to come out of this and you'll be okay. (laughs) Mine was actually kind of similar to hers, but I was going to say things are going to get hard at Dartmouth, but these are what make you stronger, what make you a better person and what make you uh, more prepared for the world. So being able to fight through these things is like only preparing you for what's yet to come. And also, I believe that people should do what makes them happy. There are always hardships that come with whatever you're trying to achieve. But I think whatever you're fighting for, make sure it's going to make you happy and make sure it's a life that you want to live. Those are both great bits of advice. I ask an advice type question to most of my guests who are double or triple your age on average. There are a bunch of things, really interesting things that come up. But the number one answer, the most common answer is, I wish I wasn't in such a hurry. I was just flying. I had to get to the next stage and I would have gotten there and I would have enjoyed the process more if I didn't put all this unnecessary pressure on myself to get there. And it's a little bit like what Sam said about being more organic in a sense. It's actually a Zen-like thing, letting the world come to you, letting not the world, but letting your life come to you. Now, at the same time, you want to mold that life. You want to craft that life. You want to be on the receiving end of everything. The trick is to be able to do both of those things, which is not that it's easy or hard. It's the complexity of life that you want to let things come to you and make it comfortable. But at the same time, you want to push yourself out of that comfort zone and go do something. One of the things I've learned in general about leadership, but it's true about a lot of things, which is that very often things that sound like opposites, like what I just talked about, that it's not an either or, it's both. You need both of those things. That's hard for people to get their head around sometimes. Some version of that is probably the most common bit of advice that I heard. I think it connects nice to what the two of you said. So, okay, our time is up. I really want to thank both for doing this. I bet you're going to be on tons of podcasts before all is said and done, but I'm going to be happy to say that I I knew them back when, when they were still in college and they were on my little old podcast. Sam Carranza and Ariana Ramsey, thank you both so much for being on the Sidcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sidcast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The Sidcast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.